So we are continuing our look at the songs of the summer. This is our, our look through, our, our, our work through the psalms as kind of a break from our normal routine. And we will get back to our normal routine here in the fall starting in September. I don't know why, but there is a ton of stuff on my podium this morning. So anybody need a screw or a pen? Are we good? That's all I can offer. I'm sorry. A paper clip. Anybody? Okay. Um, so I want to start off with telling you guys a story. So the, it goes like this. The stunning news flew through the castle and the kingdom. The king was dead. Chambers of the palace were in mourning. There, there was weeping and there was gnashing of teeth. But two of the servants of the king got together. The one servant, the one servant of the king, his, his shrewdest advisor said, where is the king? The other advisor said, well, the king's in heaven. The shrewd advisor goes, no, I, I don't think that's right. See, here's the thing. I have been on countless journeys with the king. And for every time we went on a journey, he planned it out and he talked about it for months and months in advance to the point where that's all he talked about. So I know for a fact that our king is not in heaven because he never once talked about it or planned to go there. It's an interesting story. I don't know if it's true or not. It was one I found. But when we think about planning, we think about planning and going somewhere. Many of you are going to go on vacation if you haven't already. Some of you have just returned from vacation. Others of you are going this week, maybe later today. So what kind of planner are you? What's interesting to me is that there's really two groups of planning, and I think both groups kind of get annoyed with the other, don't they? There's the people that plan weeks and weeks in advance, and then there's the people that are like pulling out of the driveway and have to come back, and then pull out and then come back again, get down the street and then turn around because they're thinking of all the things that they didn't plan ahead on. This week, my, my family, we got to go spend some time at a beach house that one of you guys has graciously let us borrow for a few days, and we actually kept it standing up. Um, it didn't get burned down, and it looks pretty clean still in spite of the three kids. But as we were talking about going there, the first mention of us going to a beach house to stay, two of my children started packing immediately, three days in advance. The other one, I think, kind of threw everything in as we were going out the door. So it's interesting the different personalities just in our three kids that are all related to me. So what's interesting, though, is that the two that planned, I mean, they planned and they put all the stuff in their bags that they thought they were going to need. The youngest put all the stuff in the bags, the things he wanted to do. So he had swimsuit, he had shorts, he had a t-shirt or two, no underwear, no toothbrush, no floss, right? No sweatshirt, we're going to the coast, come on, right? So it's interesting how people plan. My daughter, on the other hand, she had everything that she could foreseeably need, you know, like a, like a shrewd young lady as she is. She was planning all of her outfits and they all worked together really well. So it's interesting that, that that's the way we look at it. And so how this ties into this psalm is that this psalm is what's called a pilgrimage psalm or an ascent psalm or a Zion psalm. It's a psalm as the people were coming into Jerusalem, they would sing this psalm. So this is kind of their, not necessarily in a car because there weren't cars at this time, but this is that song that you sing as a family as you're going out on vacation. And so the sons of Korah are our writers for this. 
These guys were not only a musical group and musical writers, they were also guards. They guarded the entrance to the temple. That was kind of an interesting position that they had. And so these, this psalm is a travel psalm. This psalm is a planning psalm because they're planning to go to the temple. Remember, the temple was the place where the Israelites would worship. It was the place where God made his presence most clearly known on earth. And so these, this psalm is meant to be sung. This psalm is meant to put our focus on going to God's house. This psalm is structured around four blessings. We see one in verse 4, one in verse 5, and one in verse 12. The verse 4 is kind of a wistful blessing. The verse 5 is a resolute blessing. And then verse 12 is a deep content blessing. So we see this, this, this movement in the psalm. And we've seen this in other psalms where there's kind of a movement from one, one emotion to another. This psalm does that. This psalm's goal is to cultivate a desire to go to Jerusalem. It's to make them long for getting there. It's the answer, are we there yet? No, but we're going to sing about what it's like when we get there. So this is the pleasures of being in God's house. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this psalm, and then I'm going to give you the big idea. Okay, we're going to do things a little backwards today, a little bit uh, un unusual from what we usually do, and I'll, it'll make sense as we do it. So the first four verses are really the sons of Korah saying, I desire to be where God is. I desire to be where God is. And we see this in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. This, this word dwelling place is in the plural, which can mean it's the supreme dwelling place or the only dwelling place. Now, this doesn't mean that the Jews believed that the God of the Bible only resided in the temple. What that meant was this was the place he most resided. He was in all of creation. And then it says, Lord of hosts. Now, that's a weird, weird word. Does that mean Lord of those people who come and welcome you into Olive Garden? No, this, this means angels. This is armies. This is Lord of angelic armies, which I think would be a better translation. We should write the ESV and tell them to switch it next time. Verse 2, my soul longs yet faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy of the living God. This soul longing, it means I desperately want to go there. We're, are we there yet? I want to get there. This fainting is a, is a yearn. It's, I want to feel this more than anything else. And we see that word courts, right? We think of Judge Judy or uh, some sort of gavel or traffic court, and we kind of maybe go, I don't want to be in courts. This is not what that means. What this means is it means the courtyards of the temple. And this is where all the fellowship happened. This is where the teaching would happen. This is the preparatory to go into the temple, and then it says, my heart and my flesh. Those two words together mean my entirety of my being. That means from the tips of my toes to the top of my head, every part of me wants to go in to God's dwelling place. So much so that they sing for joy. They cry out to this living God, this God that is the source of everything. Notice that the word my is used in here. It's not the God. It's not the, you know, we, it's my, it's an individual. The sons of Korah are saying, I long for this. I want to be close to God. This sense of longing here makes, makes this different than how most of us think. 
Most of us think when we come to church or we come into God's presence, it's a check-off list. Check it off. I did it for this week. Instead, this is a hunger. This is an appetite. This is so incredibly strong. It's like a physical appetite that he has for a spiritual thing. He wants to be in God's presence. He's saying, it's so, it's so much in me that if I don't have it, I'm going to pass out like I haven't eaten. That's the mindset. I'm reminded of Fanny Crosby, famous hymn singer, hymn writer, who was born able to see, but a few years into her life, she got a fever that took away her sight. And yet she wrote incredible hymns. I would, if you haven't ever heard of Fanny Crosby, go look her up and listen to some of the hymns she sang. Or, I'm sorry, she wrote. But people would come up to her and they'd say, you know, Mrs. Crosby, I feel so bad that you're blind. You can't see anything. And she would always respond with this. She'd say, you know what? If I could go back and talk to God before I was born and ask for anything, I would ask for God to take my sight away at birth. And she, they would go, why? And she goes, because I want my first thing I ever see to be my Lord's face when I die and go be with him. That's the longing that we're talking about here. This longing, this desire of, I can't wait to be home with the Lord because I get to be with the Lord. That's this longing. So that's what it means when it says the heart and the flesh cry out. It's all of me. I would even give up my sight if it meant the first thing I could see would be God. Verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young on your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now, the, the temple building, the temple complex was huge, and so birds would make nests up in the building. And the smallest birds were able to find their home there. And so the psalmist is kind of doing two things here. One, he's saying, if the birds can find a home there, then yeah, us big humans can find a home there. We can, we can reside there. But I think there's more to it than that. I see a sense of envy, of jealousy. The, the psalmist is going, man, the birds get to live there, but we only get to come once a year. Oh, I wish I was a bird. I wish I was a swallow, that I could live right there with God. What a, what, a, what a crazy way to see that interaction with God. Very different than we do. Number, verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Remember that Selah is a musical pause to think about what has been said. So this word blessed, some translations will say happy. It's a much more deep blessing, much more deep happiness. It's a God-given security and prosperity produced by your security in God. It's a, it's a deep happiness. It's not the happiness where, you know, if you have a full stomach, you're happy. If you don't have a full stomach, you're not. It's not that kind of temporal thing. It's a deep-seated blessing. It's a supreme satisfaction for those who dwell, and that means to reside, to take up residence in your house. So we see our first, I desire to be where God is. Next thing we see, verses 5 through 8, so much so that traveling to him is a blessing. So much so that traveling to him is a blessing. There's not a lot of us who would say traveling to somewhere is our favorite thing, especially if you have children. It can be very difficult between the bathroom stops and the spills and the are we there yet and the fighting over what radio show and, and so on. I, I'm just making these up. These never happen in my family. 
But this traveling is a blessing. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. That highways to Zion just means the many roads to Jerusalem. Zion is the name of the mountain. It's the area that Jerusalem was in. Notice here that it's not saying, blessed are you when you get there. It's saying, blessed are you as you are going there. So this group of pilgrims are blessed that they're on their way. They're taking this journey. Not only is it a journey, a physical journey, but it's a journey in their hearts as well. They are preparing their hearts. Because remember, they're singing this on the way. And so the blessing is on the way to where you're ending up. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now, the valley of Baca is not a place that we know. Most likely, it's a symbolic, because the word Baca means weeping. And it's this idea of going from not having God to having God. It really is a, a, a going from a broken place to where they are going to end up. And so this, this picture of traveling through the brokenness to get to the springs, to get to the overflowing of blessings is the picture we see. Now, verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. This strength to strength is a, is a weird phrase, but kind of the idea here is that they go from one day's blessing to the next, to the next. Now, for the pilgrims, it could be one place of safety as they're traveling to the next place of safety, to the next place of safety. And we as believers, it's the same thing for us, is that we grow from strength to strength. Because what does the Lord say? 2 Corinthians 3.18 and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's that same picture, the Lord growing us from one strength. We think we're strong now. We don't even know what it's going to be like. You ain't seen nothing yet because the Lord's going to keep growing you and growing you on your way to Him. And notice it says, each one, every single one, will appear before God in Zion. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear to me, O God of Jacob, Selah. So verse 8 combines verses 1 and 2's definitions of God. goes from Lord God and God of hosts to both together. We see this continuing of God's names. So we now see, I desire to be where God is. So much so that the traveling to him is a blessing. And now verses 9 through 12. Because where God is, that is my home. Because he is there. Where God is, that is my home. Because he is there. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. That word behold means look intently or consider. This is a metaphor for the king. Shield is used for David many times, as well as other kings. But the idea here is, not only are we looking to the Lord, but we're looking to the Lord's anointed. And we don't have a king. We don't have an anointed like they did, but we do have a king. We do have an anointed in Christ. And so this is a picture of the shield of Christ. And if you think about Christ as the shield, he is the one that deflects all of the wrath that is so earned by us. When we sin, it's not just, oh, I did a bad thing. No, it's an offense to the God of the universe. And so Christ comes in as that shield, that buffer. 
And that's the forgiveness, and that's the life that we are guaranteed through the gospel. And so this is a picture of that, and we'll see more about it in a minute. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That word better means more good than, or I'll do a translation that my seven-year-old would say, more gooder than. Because that's what it is. It's, this is not just good, but it's gooder than good. It's more good than gooder. It just keeps going. This is a word that's got an infinite to it. It's better than better than better than better. Infinite. Plus one, right? That's the picture that we see. That this is just better than anything I can imagine. In the courtyards is better than anywhere else. Now that doorkeeper is interesting because remember, the sons of Korah, they were the guards at the gate. But that's not the word that's used here. The doorkeeper means the one who lays by the gate. Some translations will say that this is the one that opens the door. Others will say this is the one laying at the door because he can't get in. This is a beggar at the gate to the temple going, I'd rather lay at the gate than be anywhere else. And you look at it and you go, yeah, tents. No, I'm not for the camping. I get it. I'd rather sit at the door than go camping. But this tents here is not like us in camping. This was their livelihood. This is where they lived. Tents were security. Tents were safety. Traveling kings would travel around in big, luxurious tents. This was the mode of survival for most people. So he's saying, I'd rather be out of a place of security and go sit at the gate to be that much closer to God than to be in a place of security. Now, we read that and we go, okay, verse 10, it's kind of highfalutin, but verse 11 tells us why 10 makes sense. Look what verse 11 says. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. A poet said, this this verse is a box where the sweets compacted lie. There's so much in this. There's so much sweetness in this. See, the Lord is a sun, meaning he is the one that lights our way. We can see via him. He's a shield. He protects us. His favor, which means grace, is bestowed on us. His honor, his glory is there as well. And he holds nothing good back from those who follow him. Charles Spurgeon, who had a photographic memory and had read the Bible many, many times, he said, when I thought of the large promises of God, I do not know one larger than this. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. See, God doesn't promise to give us everything we think is good. He's going to give us everything that is actually good. He will give us the means to walk his paths. He will actually come and give us the strength to follow his commands. I had a conversation this week with someone about the Ten Commandments, and they were asking me, we just do these and then God blesses us. No, it's actually God provides us the means to do them, which is a blessing, and then we do them, and then we're blessed. It's, it's an incredible situation. It's not a list of rules, follow these rules, and you get to heaven. No, it's, I can't follow these rules. Lord, come help me. Now you're on your way to heaven, because the Lord comes and does it through you. And we miss that a lot when we just look at the rules and we go, these rules are what save. They don't. It's the God that comes in and allows you to follow those rules that does. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That word trust is the idea of rely on. It's it's putting your faith in. So when we read this psalm, when we, we sing this psalm, when we look at this psalm, our minds a lot of times go right to heaven. 
And if, you're, if you know your Bible really well, you know that heaven is not where we end up. We end up on the new heaven and the new earth. And if that doesn't make sense, read Revelation 21 and 22, and then I'll be right out here afterwards, and I'll help you get through it. Because the Bible doesn't promise us that we're going to be in some spiritual floaty realm, flying around with togas on, playing harps and our angel wings. Instead, what it says is we're going to die in this, this earthly body, which is deteriorating no matter what age you're at, is going to slough off. We're going to go and be with God in spirit. And then when everything's done, when the end of time comes, we're all going to come back and we're going to reside on either this earth or earth 2.0, where there will be no suffering. There will be no dying. There will be no death. There will be no cancer. There will be no muscular dystrophy. There will be no Alzheimer's. All of it's gone. And so when we look at that, we go, that sounds amazing. You're saying no more pain, no more suffering, no more dying, none of that. I want to go there. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? But here's the thing. That's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is not about describing what heaven's going to be like, as great as it's going to be. It's not about describing all the things we're going to do there. Hey, you know, I'll probably try bungee jumping in heaven since I can't die. Many of you might as well. So it, that, that's not what this is about, but our minds go there automatically. We go, the new heaven and new earth, that's where I want to be because all of these things that make this life stink are gone. But the psalmist doesn't allow us to do that. Instead, the point of this psalm is not that heaven's going to be great because sin is gone and death is gone. No, heaven's going to be great because of who belongs in heaven, who resides in heaven, and that is God. See, the definition of heaven is wherever God is. It's wherever God is. So God is there, it's heaven. God's not there, it's not heaven. You know, when the president gets on an airplane, it doesn't matter what airplane it is, as soon as he gets on it, it becomes Air Force One. See, that's the same thing. God is in heaven, and that's what makes heaven so great. All of that other stuff is like not worth noting compared to the God in heaven. So here's our big idea, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon showing you where this is in the Bible. The reason we should long for being in God's home, heaven, is not that it's great, but because the one who inhabits it is great. See, the reason why heaven is supposed to be appealing to us is not because it's the end of all of the suck in this world. It's not because it's the end of all of the things that we hate about this world. No, it's because we get to be with God. Now, all those other things are true, but the fact that God's there is the thing that's supposed to be most appealing to us. You think about the biblical authors. You know, the apostle John in Revelation, he gets to go and he gets to see into the throne room. And, and he describes it a little bit, but it's kind of side notes. He spends a lot more time describing who's on the throne and the throne that he's sitting on and what the people around him are doing. I mean, God has angels that have been describing him and singing to him for all of eternity, and they're stuck on one word. They haven't even gotten to the second word yet. Because the word holy applies to him so much that they can say that word a billion times, an infinite number of times, and they haven't exhausted how holy he is. And that's the picture that we see of heaven, is that this is God's place, and it's the place we are to long for. Heaven is where God is. 
Look at what Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, 3. He says, I will come back and take you to be with me in the place that's made of gold. No, I want you to come and be with me. See, heaven is a relational. Heaven is I get to be with God. For Christians to die, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to die is to be present with the Lord. You know these verses. I'm out of my body, I'm at home with the Lord. Not I'm out of my body, I get to go to the streets of gold. No, it's with the Lord. The Apostle Paul, I desire to depart and be in heaven. Philippians 1. No, it's I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by far better. It's better than anything this world has to offer. And if you get hung up on it, you say, well, that one said Christ and this one said God. They are the same being. And so when we worship Christ, we're worshiping God. When we worship God, we're worshiping Christ. They're all together. One author said, heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without a groom or a palace without a king. Teresa of Avila said, wherever God is, there is heaven. So the opposite of true, wherever God is not, that would be hell. The presence of God is the essence of heaven. John Milton said, thy presence makes our paradise, and where thou art, that is heaven. See, where God is, is heaven, and being in his presence is heaven. It's joy forevermore. Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, O my Lord Jesus, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. If I could be in hell and still have thee, it would be heaven. For thou art all in heaven that I want. To be with God, to know him, is the draw of heaven. Because it's better than those gifts that we just talked about. I mean, we all want no death. We all want all of the diseases gone. But that's amazing. God is more. God is above that. I got to quote Spurgeon again because he just nails it. This is what he says. Oh, to think of heaven without Christ. It is the same thing of thinking of hell. Heaven without Christ, it is a day without a sun. It's existing without life. It's feasting without food. It's seeing without light. It involves the contradictions of, of terms. Heaven without Christ, absurd. It is the sea without water, the earth without its fields, the heavens without stars. There cannot be a heaven without Christ. He is the sum total of bliss, the fountain from which heaven flows, the element of which heaven is composed. Christ is heaven. Heaven is Christ. So how did we get there from this psalm? So we've read this psalm, and you guys, okay, it's about heaven, but you seem like you're making a leap here, Pastor John. Well, I'm hoping that you're keeping me accountable. See, this psalm is not about heaven because there's no description but there is a description here, and the description is of God. Did you catch all the ways that the psalmist referred to God? You know, in our songs that we sing, a lot of times we sing God, 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 or Lord, Lord, or Jesus, Jesus. We don't change the words. But the sons of Korah, they didn't even repeat themselves. They went through and chose a different word for God all the way through, different adjectives, different descriptions throughout. Because the point is, this is who God is. See, the greater God is in our eyes, the easier it is to worship Him. The greater the desire is for us to worship Him. See, we get hung up on the fact that we think the worship is the stuff we do before the pastor gets up and makes you feel bad. Worship is actually what you do throughout your life. Because worship is saying, that 
is God. That is God. Everything we see, we see God through that. Through our work, through our rest, through our pleasures, through our sorrows. All of it is God. And everything we do points back to the greatness of God. See, we must, like the psalmist, delight in his presence. And we can see that most fully here in a church, can't we? We can delight in God's presence even more. See, the problem is is that we see worship as something we do on Sundays. We don't see it throughout the week. So, of course, when it comes to our Bible reading time, we go, ugh, i got to read it daily. Oh, man. And even when it comes to worship, we go, I went to church a couple weeks ago. I don't need to go once a week. Come on. Or we can't lay aside our differences on, on what we see and how things should be when we're here in the building. Ultimately, if we're here to worship God, we're not going to let anything get in the way. We can't wait to worship God. I remember a friend of mine, when he became a believer, he actually went through the phone book back in the day and found out when all the different services were, and he went to service on a Friday, he went to service Saturday morning, one Saturday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday Because he couldn't get enough of God. Because he's like, this is the God of the universe. And when I sit and talk about him with other people that believe in him, I feel him more clearly. I'm getting that taste of heaven. And that's exactly what we need. We need to have that longing. And that's what this psalm is pointing out. This lack of anticipation, this lack of wanting to be with God's people and to worship together in song and in and scripture and in sermon and in fellowship around coffee and water. This lack of anticipation has nothing to do with God. Guys, it has everything to do with us. We are the problem. We're so enamored with the things of this world that we can't be bothered with the things of the next. David Wells, a philosopher, said, the fundamental problem with the Christian world today is that God is too inconsequential to them. We don't see God rightly. So here is my goal for the rest of this psalm. I want you to see God the way the psalmist saw God. So we're going to walk back through it. This is God according to the sons of Korah, according to the Holy Spirit that came on them and gave them. This is God saying, this is who I am. And if we see him even a little bit better than what we did when we walked in the doors today, this will be a successful time. But my goal is I want you to see him so much better than you could even imagine. So look at this, verse one. It's God is the covenant-keeping God. When you see the word Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, that is the word Yahweh. That's God's personal name. This is the name that he made the covenant with Moses. He said, I am That's his personal name. He didn't give that personal name to others. It was Israel, Yahweh's people. This covenant he made with us unworthy sinners. So verse one, the first picture we see is that God is a covenant-keeping God. Second one we see in verse one, he's the commander of heavenly armies. Remember, Lord of hosts mean heavenly armies. What kind of security do we have in that God has an army of angels? Remember, angels are so impressive that if one came here right now, you would all fall down on your faces and worship it. It's that terrifying. Most of the time when the Bible, when when the angel, when it says they fall down, it says they fell down like dead men or dead women. They don't even want to move because they're that terrified. And God is the commander of those angels, 
and he has them at the ready. That's your God. That's security. Verse 2, it says God is the living God. Not the dead God. He is active. He is moving about. He is on the move in our world, in your life. This is not some dumb idol to bow down. This is the living God. Verse 3, it says, God is my king. Not just any king, but my king. I have no connection with the Queen of England. That's their queen. This is my king. He is my supreme ruler. He is the one that runs my life. He is royalty. And not only, and I'm going to add this in there, not only is he my king, but I'm a part of his family if I'm in Christ. So that means I'm royalty. I am, that's my king. He is my king. I serve him, and he is my dad. Verse 3, God is my God. You say, well, that's my God. That's my God. A lot of times when we hear that, mine, it's, it's out of pride. But here's the thing. This is good pride. This is the time pride isn't a sin. It's like a husband when he sees his wife walking down the groom, wife walking down the aisle, and he goes, that's my wife. She's mine. She chose me. That's the way it's to be with our Lord. That's my God. He chose me, my God. Skipping down to verse 8. God is the only God. In this verse, we get the word Elohim, which is a word that just means little g God. And so it says, He is Lord God of all. If there were other gods, He is the God above them. But since there aren't, He is the only God. He is the Lord God of angel armies. Next one, verse 8, God is a faithful God. See, when we're reading through there and it says God of Jacob, we go, okay, some dead dude. And we just move on. But that's not the point of bringing up Jacob here. Because the promise for Jacob is the promise that the sons of Korah are still living out. This is a faithful God. See, God makes lots of promises. And unlike us, he keeps every single one of them. He is a faithful God. Making and keeping promises is what he does. Verse 11, God is the Son. He's the source of light and life to all his people. The, the Bible writers usually didn't use this word sun because there was so much sun worship. The Egyptians worshiped the sun, and many other religions worshiped the sun. And so they didn't want any confusion here, but the psalmist can't help it because the sun is the best explanation. It provides light, and that light provides life to everything. And that's the way God is. He provides us with light. He provides us with life. Next we see verses 9 and 11. We see that God is a shield of protection and provision. When we hide behind him, we are safe. Not only from the wrath of God due to our sins, but from the, the, the cares of the world. He is a shield. He is a protector. Verse 11, God showers his people with grace. Now you go, wait a sec, I don't see the word grace there, but that word favor is the same concept. It means unmerited gifts, unmerited grace. So God in his grace, grace is what makes Christianity amazing. We are wretched sinners. We deserve to go to hell and then some. But yet God in his mercy comes in and bestows on us grace. He says, I'm going to favor you. So he is a God of grace. Not only that, but he's a God that surrounds his people with glory. 
That word honor means glory. It means praise. It means God is going to look on us and praise his own name because we now are found in him. And then last, verse 11, that promise that Spurgeon couldn't couldn't stop talking about. God shows his people all his goodness. He keeps no good thing from them. What we need, he gives us. What we don't need, he keeps away from us. You put all this together and the psalmist goes, how could you not want to be in his presence? How could you not want to spend one minute with him instead of thousands of elsewhere? Because God is great. Now, I've heard many people say, but that just sounds boring. We're going to go to heaven and we're going to sing worship music? Sorry, Christian. We're going to be singing worship music in heaven. We'll be relaxing. You'll be working. People will say that, and they'll say, what? It's just going to be worship. See, here's the thing. You miss the point of what worship is if you think it's only singing. It can be singing, but it can also be silence. It can be working. It can be resting, because all of it is. Listen to Sam Storms. He says, we will constantly be more amazed with God, talking about us in heaven, more in love with God, thus ever more relishing his presence in our relationship with him. Our experience of God will never reach its consummation. It will deepen, develop, intensify, amplify, unfold, increase, broaden, and balloon. Again, people will say, but that, that's this relationship with God. What about all the streets of gold and the not worrying about dying, bungee jumping? What about all that? Well, Jonathan Edwards said this, and I think it works. The redeemed in heaven will enjoy other things, but... That which they shall enjoy, whether it be in angels or each other or in whatever they do, they will see and delight, not in the thing, but in the God that speaks through it. See, that's the way we have to start seeing this world. We have to start seeing this world as God is speaking through everything, through the chairs, through the lights, through the clouds, through the rain, everything is God, and we can worship him for everything. The greatest gift we have now and in heaven is God. This final verse, verse 12, nails it. They've come into the temple. They are, they are there with the God of the universe. He's made himself more clearly known. And if this God is real, he's the same God when they leave the temple and go back home. Because if God is not the God of when you're at home, he's not the God for you when you're here. The joy of being in God's presence for one day for them, acts as a way to springboard into a thousand days elsewhere. See, we, we need to constantly look at that. See, the, the, when they would travel, the reason they chose the, day, the thousand days is because usually on these pilgrimages, they do them once every three years because it costs money. We don't have to wait. There's another church service next week. There's countless church services around this city. You can be in the presence of God more clearly right here and right now. You don't have to wait. See, our life is a rough draft. It's a practice run of what eternity is going to be, where we experience God forever. Zion, the the place where Israel went to worship in Jerusalem, was chosen where God would make himself most clearly known in the inner room of the temple. To be in Zion was to be close to God. We Now know we don't have to go to Jerusalem to be close to God. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's the same word we see in this psalm. God dwells with us. Not only that, but He dwells 
in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Jesus comes. He dwells with us. His Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. Now watch this. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What he's saying is this is a temple right here and right now. This room full of believers is a temple. God is making himself more clearly known. Because each of us that have Christ in us, we've brought more of God here. He's making himself more known here. So this should be the place. We should long to come together. It's not the building. It's the people that are in here that are worshiping God that make it matter. Think about what happens when we get together every single week. God is here, and God is there, and there. And there, and he's more clearly felt right here in this presence. Not only that, but it's a picture of what heaven's going to be like. In the southern part of France, there's a, a church by the name of the House of Many Lights. And when the architects got together, they said, we're not going to put up any places for candles. This is a 16th century church, so it was all candles, no electric lighting. We're not going to put any places up high for candles. What we're going to do is on the end of each row, we're going to put a place for a family to come and bring their light. And so every Sunday night when they would have church, the family would come and they would bring a light and they would put it there. And as the place filled, the place filled with light. And if someone didn't come, that light was extinguished. And if several someones didn't come, the darkness began to reign in the church instead of the light being the focus. And that's what happens. That's what happens when we are not coming together is we're not experiencing that fuller light. Now that light on its own, yeah, you know, you can take your light down the street and it'll light a little circle around you, but you've all seen it. We've done it in Christmas Eve services with the candles. We get all those candles going. We don't need no electric light. It lights up the building. Now that's what it is when God is in your life, when Christ is residing in you, he is now bringing out light in this room, and we get to share it together. We get to do it together. So how do we get that? Well, if you're here and you've never heard this before, it is as simple as this. It's not a prayer. It's not magic words. It is repentance. It's seeing that I am not in right relationship with God because I have sin, and so I'm going to turn and go a completely different direction. You repent, you confess, and you talk to the Lord about it. This declaration says it's done. And then the Holy Spirit comes and resides inside of you, and that Holy Spirit allows you to follow all of those commandments in the Bible. So all of the rules that you broke for your entire life, all of those laws of God that you've just thumbed your nose at, all that sin, when the Holy Spirit comes and resides inside you, he begins making it so you don't do that anymore. And then you join a church, then you join a life group, and you share your light. And when your light starts to go out, the light around you helps you go and get that light back, which is why we need each other. Yes, you can worship God up on a hill, 
You can worship God from your recliner at home, but this is where the light buffers the light and it makes it stronger. So for those of you that do know Christ, what do you do with this? What's keeping you from knowing him more? What's keeping you from having that longing and that anticipation? Just like I said with the person who doesn't know the Lord, that the Holy Spirit comes in and fills them up and helps them stop sinning, that same Holy Spirit is one you can tap into right now. Take it to him. You want to know God better? Ask God to make himself known better to you. He will do it. He wants to do it. So this psalm is all about moving from outside to the inside, from the countryside to the city, from the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the daily concerns to sacred spaces. In years past, when people would get ready for Sunday, there would be a Saturday night bath and the go-to-Sunday church clothes. There was a, a, a preparing, getting yourself ready to go. Some of it was tradition, some of it was the culture at the time, but behind all of that was this idea of we're going to meet with God. Think about if you were going to go meet with royalty. I don't think many of us are going to wear our board shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and some ratty old flip-flops. We're going to dress up. We're going to, we're going to prepare. We're going to make sure we know the names, Queen so-and-so. No, it's going to be Queen Elizabeth II, you know, House of Windsor or whatever. Right? So we're going to want to know. And see, that's the same with us when it comes to getting ready for church, when it comes to preparing ourselves to go. See, we need to not have a passion for this building. This building is great. I love this building. I've put a lot of sweat equity in this building in the last year, and I'm sure many of you can, you can sympathize with that. But this building doesn't have any special value. Not even what we do here in the building has special value. What has special value is the one we worship. And the one we pursue in this building makes this building something. A church building should never overshadow the spiritual realities of what we're doing in here. And so we need to make Sundays more of a focal point in our lives. There's nothing like coming to the Lord's day. But many of us, we're not primed and ready to go. Instead, we just kind of roll in and do our thing. Yes, there are no more pilgrimages, and this building is not special, but what we do here on Sunday mornings when we gather is. What we do here when we get together is. You know, you expect your pastor to come with some sort of sermon prepared, and that he didn't prepare it five minutes ago. Expect our worship team to know what songs they're doing and have actually tried to play them once or twice. So why are the rest of you off the hook about preparing to come to church? We get to come and meet with royalty because we are royalty and we get to experience being with him. So I'm going to give you some practical ways to do this as we wrap up. So put on your big boy pants. The correct response is either amen or ouch. <laughs> so number one, think about and prepare for Sunday the rest of the week. Prepare all week. You know where we're going next week, Psalm 85. Prepare. Get your heart ready. And we get to the fall and you're like, well, how far are we going to go in Matthew? Well, just read until a couple paragraphs have gone by and you've probably got it. But prepare yourself all week. See, our devotional time is not a check off, check off, check off. It's to keep our hearts kind of on fire from what we got here on Sunday. Number two, have a boring Saturday night. Many times our Saturday nights are the things that get in the way of our Sunday mornings. 
Trade your Saturday night for Friday night. Do something Friday night that you need to recover. That's what Saturday is for. But Saturday night needs to be your time to start getting yourself ready. Maybe that means you go to bed earlier. Maybe that means you turn off devices and you just kind of relax so you can sleep. Number three, come ready to learn, worship, and give. Now, this is not tithe. This means give to those around you. Share your light with those around you. But come ready to learn. God is speaking. The only thing getting in the way of God speaking is you or whatever you've done to get here. So come ready to learn, to worship, and to give. Number four, turn your media off. Here's the thing. All the stuff that you want to look at, all the social media in the morning before you come to church will still be there after church. And if anything, it's going to get you in a place where you don't need to be. You're not getting primed. And I, I, this is as much for me as well. When football season comes along, I love reading the reports of what's going to be coming and what's going to be happening that day. But you've got to turn it off because we're going to meet with the king. Number five, plan ahead. Plan ahead. Put your clothes out the night before. Don't be prideful in it. Don't be like, well, we'll just figure it out in the morning. Put the clothes out, get them ready to go so that you're ready to go, so that everything is geared around it. Plan ahead to come meet with the Lord. Number six, read ahead. Read the passage. Read it that morning. Do that before you come so that you're like, yeah, I've been chewing on this. Chew on the passage before you get here. Number seven, get up earlier. What that means is you're going to have to give yourself more time because if you have not already figured it out, everything that can go wrong will go wrong on Sunday mornings on the way to church. It's even worse when you have kids. I was talking about you guys that don't have kids. It will go wrong. Number eight, get to church on time. I think there was a song about that. Get to church on time. Because you're going to, remember, you're, you're not just missing out yourself, but other people are missing out when you aren't here. We need each other. We need to be able to fellowship and share the flame that God has given us. Charles Spurgeon said, late attendance frankly, frequently means heartless worship, disturbance, and distraction. He was writing almost 200 years ago. Number nine, talk about church on the way. Talk about it on the way. This is especially important for those of you that have kids. Talk about what you're going to be talking about at church. Talk about what you learned last week. Talk about what they're looking forward to. See, we're going to meet with the king. Prepare your hearts. Do everything you can to make yourself ready to meet with the king. Get yourselves ready throughout the week. Bring your light and share it with others. This weekly recharge is the way for us to go out into our dark world. We need each other. We must prepare for Sunday in order to get the most out of it. We get the one who makes heaven heaven. We get the one whom we are going to be mesmerized for all of eternity. We get the lover of our soul. We get the groom. We get our God. And we get to experience him more fully right here together each Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that, Lord, you are here more clearly than anywhere else. Lord, we can feel your presence. We can feel that you're here. And Lord, I just pray that we would long for this throughout the week, that this psalm would be our heart's desire, that we would long to be with you. 
And I pray that if, if we don't know you, Lord, that, that you would begin to work in our hearts so that we would. Lord, introduce yourself to us if we don't know you. Lord, we thank you. We, we now are going to sing as a form of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would hear these words and be pleased with them. In your name, amen.